Three, three, two, 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 one, one. Holy shit, that Perfect. was awful. That, that was really, horrible. So some of the worst work we've encountered here on the podcast. That was the worst counting. How are we so bad at counting? I have ever heard in my life. I am proud to have been a part of something so terrible. Yeah. <laughs> no, I thought it was I thought it was good. I didn't know all the numbers. So I was guessing at a lot of it. I heard a niner in there. Someone said niner. That's not one of the numbers they're supposed to be saying. We're back. We're back. It's a distraction. I'm Drew. That's Roth. How are you doing, Roth? Good, man. Feeling all right. How are you? Good. I'm good. I'm doing all right. I'm getting. It's. It is now appropriately cold out, and I'm almost. I'm almost in holiday mode. I'm very, very excited to get all Christmassy and all that shit. It's. I, I'm enjoying my my Mr. Autumn Man period. This is what I. This is what I live for. All my stupid sweaters and shirts. The next few weeks, I'm going to look like seasonally appropriate, and then after that, they're going to be like, "What happened to that guy?" I haven't, uh, I haven't started the Christmas season yet, but I have. I'm really close to buying nog. I'm, I'm on the edge. I'm on the nog. Mm-hmm. Edge. The government won't let you have it till after Thanksgiving. They won't. They won't, and that's a problem. It's the nog is too woke, and they won't <laughs> let me have the woke nog. I'm a single issue voter. And this is a really important thing to me. Should we stop talking about Nog? We yeah, got the whole rest we, of this fucking calendar year to talk about Nog. Yeah, I think we should talk to our old friend. Our guest this week is our old friend and former Deadspin colleague, Rob Harvilla. Rob wow. is the host. Rob is the host of the 60 songs that explain the 90s podcast at The Ringer. And this week he published a book with the same title. Rob, how are you, brother? Hello, I am so thrilled to be here. Can I ask you like kind of a political question, which is when do you start listening to Christmas music? When is it acceptable to listen to Christmas music? Like socially acceptable? Yeah, just socially, spiritually, you know, culturally. Like when does the Christmas music season start? I am having a dispute with some of my friends right now about this. Like what day? Roth, you're a devout Christian. Can you? Yeah, I should start as a Methodist (laughs) on this podcast. Oh, good. Thank goodness Uh, we have a Methodist. So for me, I I feel like if I hear it before Thanksgiving, I'm like, oh, that seems early. Exactly. But I don't, it depends. And you will. I think. Like retail gets gets into it. Like you will. It also depends on what uh, Christmas song I am hearing. That like you could play uh, All I Want for Christmas is You for me any time of year. And I'll be like, that's great. I really hope that it works out for Mariah because mm-hmm. it seems like she July, really wants that. Sure. Yeah, it's a classic. I think it's the song of the summer every single summer. <laughs> <laughs> the one that... The thing Absolutely. That, uh, in, in terms of uh, holiday music, that I'll say very briefly, as somebody who goes to Goodwill a lot, I was hearing a lot of Halloween music there before Halloween. And I heard Halloween something music. that I think I had never really considered, which are basically Bobby Boris Pickett album cuts, like songs that are not the Monster Mash by the guy that recorded the wow. Monster Mash, like other songs from that album. How are, are they good? Are they up to snuff? Were, was the album all monster themed or does he just do stuff like, like, does he just do stuff like the, the soda jerk bop and like other no, they shit. were all, they all had to do, it was like different types of parties that you would have with different types of monsters. Oh, you know? really? So like the monster mash, yeah, so there's one okay. where it's like, you know, Dracula's Briss or whatever, you know, just like different <laughs> things that were- I want to listen to that right now. It's really good. It's also funny. Tasty Briss. Delicious. Briss. He sings them all in the same kind of like, 
if like Fred Schneider was British vocal register too. So there's a lot of him just being like, spaghetti, okay. you know, just like sort of <laughs> leaning into these. <laughs> that was lines. a phenomenal <laughs> impression. I've been British working it out Fred around Schneider. the house. That was amazing. But you really Fred Schneider, have. You've been practicing. Schneider's different. I, I do a lot of Schneider voice around the house more than more than I'm comfortable talking about here on the pod. But um, yeah. So if it's if the choice is between hearing uh, Bobby Boris Pickett all year round or hearing, uh, you know, a Christmas song in early November, I guess I'm fine with either. I yeah. guess is where I'm realizing I'm landing. Drew, what's your policy? Because you guys you play it in the house. Is that something that are you gentile enough to just put Christmas music on? Yeah, I I do, but only starting. Uh, after Thanksgiving or like over Thanksgiving okay. weekend is kind of okay. Although I've gotten, I've gotten objections mm-hmm. to that like during the Thanksgiving weekend, but then afterwards it's as far as I'm concerned, it's all right. Retail. I can't do anything about like by the time September hits, you're going to walk into the fucking grocery That's store true. and there'll be, you know, they'll be playing like here comes Santa Claus and there'll be like a 10 foot tall display of fucking like, Mm-hmm. You know, like her, like Hershey kisses that are only like red and green and all that shit. There's nothing you can do about that. But when I sure. want to start listening to it, I have my Christmas mix on Spotify, and then I I cue that up. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I listen to it alone, like by myself. Like so, <laughs> so if I'm down in the recliner That's with like a nice scotch, like yeah, what are you talking about? Yeah, okay. yeah. If I've had my gummy and I'm playing everybody's golf downstairs, and I got I got the wireless <laughs> fill out. I'll fucking put on. I'll okay. fucking put on Elvis. You know, like I love. It's great. I don't have any good impressions today, and I feel like I've, I've, I'm unprepared for this conversation. That's too bad because I was going to ask you to do your Gavin Rossdale impression, and apparently you will fail me. That's awful. <laughs> no, thank you. Nobody wants that. Rob, now that you're here, and because you're the host of Sixty Songs that Explain the Nineties. Could you please explain the 90s to us? <laughs> the 90s were a time before the internet. I think that might be the actually most important fact about them is that the internet did not exist. That's basically. right. And it means I have to keep I have to keep explaining, you know, very archaic physical activities like going to a record store and like standing in front of a wall of CDs with $20 and having to choose one. That's right. You know, I have to explain yeah. that that the tape adapter for your car for your CD player, like the black tape. Yeah, and then you have to put that's the right. Lighter. My old man had have, that with the wire. I have to coming explain out. like the that's right. It's crucial, man. I have to explain like the see-through phone, like the touch-tone dial phone, you know, that everybody had. It's just a lot of physical objects that 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 feel like they're from two centuries ago now. Just the tactile nature of the 90s is is the the thing I have to explain, but I have totally failed to explain it to young people. I, I they don't believe me, quite frankly, and I no longer really believe it either. Do your children believe you when you it. explain the nineties to them? <laughs> no, I mean it. My I, children don't listen to anything I say. Okay, because yeah. I like I try to explain it to my kids. I'm like, oh, it's the eighties. Everyone looked worse. Like I try to do that. Like it doesn't. <laughs> but I do want to go. I want to speak go, for yourself. I want to go. Yeah. Okay. I want to go back to the tactile experience because, like you said, the 1990s were really the last age of analog music consumption. Right? CDs, mixtapes that were actual mm. cassette tapes. Do you feel? Oh yes. That music in general has lost something since then, or is that just old fart shit? 
I think both can be true. It is most certainly old fart shit, but yeah. it is my old fart shit, right? And the experience of having a crush on a girl and like making that physical mixtape, right? And like scrawling out the titles and like handing to them, like that thunderbolt of physical contact where you hand her the tape and then she never talks to you again. Like that's a beautiful moment, <laughs> right? And that's a physical experience and you just cannot replicate that. I work for Spotify, you know, but it's a Spotify playlist just cannot compare to that experience of being rejected in person with a physical object between you, right? Well, because if you, making a Spotify playlist takes five minutes, mm -hmm. right? Like you're not, you're not going through a sure. dual, a dual tape deck, right? Like dubbing you're like- not pushing pause <laughs> at just the right moment. That's right. Right. And then like- Or completely right. scuppering your chances at love for the rest of your life. Yeah, like there's anxieties <laughs> that come with having to use- Jurassic technology that yeah. uh, younger people will never. And like understand. you have to like, and you have to get the the blank tape uh, sleeve, and you have to write like the track listing. But you have to do in like you your do. best handwriting, and it's like, like oh, bad handwriting. And like you have to yeah, title it, and like, do I put a heart on either side of it? <laughs> like what? Like that's right. I think you do. I think you do. Generally speaking, you know, maybe you can say it's ironic. Yeah. Oh, 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 I remember in college there was a girl I thought was attractive, and I I was so close. I didn't mm. do it, but I was very close uh -huh. to just putting a, a tape of Butterfly by Lenny Kravitz onto a blank tape and like leaving it like in her mailbox without wow. attribution. Like I was, I was close, but then I was like, <laughs> I was like, you know what? The Phantom Lenny classic move. Yeah, I would get I would get arrested for that. When you said just the song Butterfly, I was like, honestly, Lenny Kravitz <laughs> is the best way to end that. Oh. It could have been a lot worse. You could have hit right. her with the come my lady, come, come my lady. Yeah, I mean, it could have been like sex type thing. It would have been bad. I would not have, no, I would but... not have done any of that. <laughs> wow. Rob, what one song explains the 90s best and why is it Rico Suave by Gerardo? Don't answer that. I think oh, he Rico should answer Suave it. is a great answer. I was just thinking, like, I made a mixtape for a girl once, and I put A Tribe Called Quest's ele Electric Relaxation on it, but I thought you would be offended by the line about fat-ass thighs. Like, girl, something-something, you got me mesmerized with your something-something mm. in your fat-ass thigh. And so I, another thing that you can do with a physical mixtape is you can turn the volume down, and you can tape over just that part, you know? Wow. So it's like that I was sort of, I was a little live mixing in there. I don't know if that's the, it's Rico Suave. Did you swap in your own voice? I'm like, slender thighs. I <laughs> with your with your regular size thighs, yeah. <laughs> That's it. That was my fife dog. You hit a girl with the radio. Edit. And did you did you have like did you have a '90s phone voice with a girl? So like the girl would call. Yes. And instead of Hello. saying like hi, you'd be like, yeah, speak you'd be to, like yes. hi, like like a, like your I have a crush on you voice. Like, <laughs> that was yeah, it. Did you talk like Ralph Tresvant on the phone? Like did you stand for some reason? <laughs> I'm, I'm more of a Johnny Gill, but yeah, it's everything I said had like hearts on either side of it. Yes. <laughs> Rico Suave. Rico, it, it has to be a random song like that. My, my joke answer that is also my sincere answer is How Bizarre by OMC. Yeah. Oh, Sierra La Boca, por favor. Wow. Uh, no, yeah, I'm joking. He's joke. got them all. It's a joke. <laughs> He wasn't telling you he was quoting the song. Yeah. Oh. Yay. Oh, oh, I thought it I thought it was an instruction. That's okay. Who's the 90s music knower here? I mean, really. 
that's a novelty song <laughs> by a group that did not. Mm-hmm. I probably released a full album here, but like not any other songs anyone no. would know about. Can you? Ex- I don't want to make you have to explain what maybe is a gag answer, although you said it's also not. Uh, I think that's a really no, good answer, no, but tell both. me, tell me why it fits for you. I think people talk about okay, so grunge dominates you know, 90s rock for the first half of the decade, right? And around 1994, 1995, you know, when Kurt Cobain dies, there's a vacuum, right? And people talk about the mid to late 90s, and especially 97. I don't remember when How Bizarre was, but I think it was right around there. As a time where, like, really random shit started happening. You know, yeah. just this uh, Sugar Ray's Fly or like Chumbawamba. Barbie Girl. Yeah. Barbie Girl is a great one. Steal My Sunshine. We love Len. You know, we love Len. He's wonderful. He's a close friend. I still listen to that song. <laughs> we love Len. Len probably has other songs. Yeah. And so I, it's just a period of, of delightful chaos where suddenly like, you get what you give, right? Like just where anybody can suddenly have a huge hit. And for some reason, it could never happen at any other period in human history except for right here in 1997, you know? And then Napster and sort of the boy band boom takes over and that's the end of it, you know? But there's, there's this vacuum that exists that is super, super 90s and is like just random beyond all imagining, you know? And we, it was, it was baffling to live through, but we remember it fondly now, mostly. Yeah, I think you can almost organize it into buckets. So you have grunge, right? And then you have basically mm-hmm. the butt rock that replaced it and killed off rock essentially is a popular format. And then you have and then you have songs sure. like you have like Fetty Legrand and like like all this shit that was made by like European producers that like they would first mm-hmm. of all they would steal like either a sample or they would have like a famous woman like Martha Wash come in and lay down vocals and then pay her like eight bucks and then right. put it in there. And then yeah, and then they would vent, invent a like a group name, but it wouldn't be a group at all. It wouldn't be a group at all. It'd just be like some weird German asshole like in a basement, but then it would be in Snap. every fucking club. <laughs> some, some, yeah, yeah, yeah. some weird German right. asshole. And then it would be like everything. in yes. every club everywhere. So you had that. <laughs> and then you had, then mm-hmm. you had like, and then you had uh, West Coast hip hop and you had East Coast hip hop. And then, mm-hmm. uh, then Cry, you had like yeah. weird kind of indie shit. And I don't know if that counts as grunge. What else am I missing here? What else? You, well, you're missing ska. Drew, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the, 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 and and the neo swing moment. You're missing the squirrel nut zippers. Maybe the answer. Yeah. My other joke answer to the most '90s song is Zoot Suit Riot, because it's just like I don't know what fucking year it is. That's a fucking brutal song. Those microclimates that kind of like grew up for a period mm-hmm. of eighteen months, mm-hmm. and like presumably it was. You know, still the record industry was healthy enough that like all the guys from Real Big Fish, I hope, like own their own homes. You know, oh, they like totally the, did. That they yeah. have, and like the homes have like pools, mansions right next yeah. to each other. There's yes. a good bit in the book where you, you you do touch on the ska bands. You also touch on your own experience playing in a ska band, which I thought was very brave of you. Yeah. Um, would you like to say the name of the? Yeah, he played the French horn. It was great. I would love to say, I I it was bass actually. I will never get tired of saying scantily plaid. We scantily, of course, scantily spelled with a case. Sky, it's 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 the most ingenious band name. It is not my band name. I didn't think it up. I was just along for the ride. But I am very proud to have played. We played like four shows 
in the basements of various dorms. We were not well liked, uh, but I enjoyed it tremendously. And it's the highlight of my artistic career. I peaked at whatever, 19, you know, and I was What's great about that section in the, and I enjoyed the book very much. The the ska stuff is interesting because I think of it as, you know, in the same way that I think of like the Brian Setzer orchestra or what you were talking about with squirrel nut zippers, like just sure. kind of a weird thing that happened in the culture for a while, you know, where it's just like, oh, do you remember when everybody yeah. was wearing like really good, like when everybody wore like hammer pants when we were in middle school, just like when everybody went to school with their pajamas <laughs> on for like seventh grade, skids. that was like every, yeah, yeah skits. like nobody was, yeah. was really like. I didn't, it didn't occur to me that that was a weird thing to do. I was just like, yeah, no, you're supposed to put on the biggest pants that you have and then you just go to homeroom and that's <laughs> how just, it is. It's comfortable. You can fit a lot of stuff in it. Yeah, yeah. The ska stuff, you, uh, you take seriously all of the stuff that you talk about. The essays are kind of, it's not put into, or it yeah. is put into buckets, but not in the way where it's like genre-fied. It's sort of got this most free associative kind of float mm-hmm. from one chapter to the next. But you take seriously the fact yeah. that all the ska musician guys, or not all of them, but some of them, were like kind of agonized over the idea of like selling out. That like the guys from Real Big Fish sure. like made songs where they were sort of like, I'm taking all this record industry money. And, you know, they were like snotty and punkish mm-hmm. and funny about it. They weren't, you know, tearing their hearts out yeah. uh, over it. But this was a period of time where a bunch of random acts did really have a moment in the sun in a way that I don't think necessarily happens anymore. Or, or if it does, there's the a sun, sort of a micro a perfect example. Drew. But that like, so when you're going through all of this, like where is the bar for what you will not dismiss? Because like even Limp Biscuit, you give a decently <laughs> thoughtful hearing here. Like, how hard is it to sort of keep that standard for yourself when you're writing something like this? I think the feeling I have is that even something like Achy Breaky Heart, right, or the Macarena, I think what people hated about it was not the song itself. It was the ubiquity of the song. Right. Oh, it was yeah. about it being crammed down your throat, you know, for a year and a half. And it's like, I'm going to kill somebody if I have to. You know, even it's so funny to me that even the Weird Al Yankovic parody of of achy breaky heart is like i i'm gonna kill you if you play that song again you know even weird al you know (laughs) sort of lost his serenity about it but i think with the distance of 30 years you can sort of take the song back and just sort of listen to the song separate from you know the the prolonged phenomenon you know that built up around the song you can appreciate the macarena as just two nice guys from spain who are suddenly global superstars and have no idea why you know and so even i i I didn't go into this thinking I'm going to be nice to everything, you know, but I think it very quickly emerged that all of this, the show, the book worked better as a celebration because, you know, I loved ska back then and I can listen to it and I can laugh at myself now, but you know, I can, you know, the mighty, mighty Boston's had been at it for like several years, you know, five, 10 years, you know, and a bunch of albums before they suddenly have this big hit song. Like it's not, you know, Real Big Fish titled their big hit sellout, you know, as you say, Real Big Fish have all this anxiety, you know, about what they're doing, but the Mighty Mighty Boston's are just doing what they've always done, you know, and they sort of wander into the spotlight and they're like, oh, this is cool. And then they wander back out and they go on and they keep being themselves. You know, I just, in the end, there's just, there's no song that I hate enough 
to talk at length about how I hate it. You know, like I don't want to hear Cotton Eye Joe again. I don't really want to think critically or personally about Cotton Eye Joe. And so I don't. And I probably will continue to. Well, but there why even not? comes a point where, where did like, you come from? Where did you go to not like us? <laughs> That's a good question. Answer Drew's questions, not is, in the order in is, which they were posed. Uh, you actually, I mean, you do touch on a good point, though, okay. where because of when we're going back to sort of the last analog era of music, it's also the last time you could be that heavily overexposed to certain songs. Like, I can't really mm. listen to Nevermind ever again right. because I heard it five billion fucking times in, in 1992. Exactly. Right? And it's a great album, but I just I can't. Yeah. Sometimes I can do it, but I can't. It's mm -hmm. not, you, you were sort of imprisoned by what CDs your friends were playing in the fucking dorm or what, you know, what was on rotation in, in terrestrial radio or, right. you know, what was, you know, what was being played at parties and stuff like that. And of course, that's how I ended up being MTV resenting. That's how I ended up resenting like the entire genre of Nescac rock. So like Fish, Big Head Todd, <laughs> early Nescac Dave Matthews. Rock. Big Head Todd, right. Bittersweet. Yeah. These are songs yeah. for liberal arts colleges with hockey teams that punch way above their rate. That is exactly the what we're talking about. The right. whitest goddamn music. That was Ohio University. Yes. Yep. Arrested yep. Development. You know, the rap group. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Nescak Rock and uh, Maction Core are both, yes, they're <laughs> stylistically I, I cousins. Maction. Uh, you guys up on OAR of a revolution? That was the big. That oh was the big boy. one. So they're yeah. crazy, crazy game of poker. They're local. They're from where <laughs> big deal. They're from where I live, and my my wife listens to them, and they're not really for me. But like I'm like, oh, oh they're local, so good mm. for them or whatever. Yeah, I do think that there's something about like those little regional scenes, the ones that. It was different. Mm -hmm. I went to school in Southern California. My wife went to school in Connecticut before she went to New York, and so for her it was like. And she's from New England. So like Guster was one of those things where just these like regionally Ooh, popular the acts. Hand, yeah, the bongos. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But like she saw Guster with like 20,000 people at like a football stadium, you know, and it was like <laughs> not weird right, right. for that. But I had never, I still don't know if I would be able to pick one of their songs out of a lineup. It was just like, because I was from, you know, crucially 200 miles south. Right. So like it just was not a part of my right. culture. You were just out of the Nescat radius. You were outside the radius. Yeah. Uh, let's take a break and come back with Rob Harvilla. But before we do, I just want to know that this week's episode is brought to you by Jessica Hahn's Secret Revealing Hotline. Dial 1-900-568-6868 and Jessica will tell you all the secrets that she didn't tell Jim and Tammy Faye. Ooh. That's 1-900-568-6868. $2.99 for the first minute, 99 cents each additional minute. We'll be right back with Rob Harvilla to discuss the 1990s strikingly contemporary i was i was like 80 percent sure that wasn't real hey it's drew and we're sponsored this week by uncommon goods if you want to hear where'd you get that this holiday season uncommon goods is your secret weapon Uncommon Goods is here to make your holiday shopping stress-free by scouring the globe for the most remarkable and truly unique gifts for everyone on your list. Whether you're shopping for your secret Santa or for your entire family, Uncommon Goods knows exactly what they want. 
There are even collections for husbands that include some very cool sports stuff, which I would like very much. So when you shop at Uncommon Goods, you're also supporting artists and small independent businesses. Uncommon Goods looks for products that are high quality, unique, and often handmade or made in the U.S. They have the most meaningful, out-of-the-ordinary gifts anywhere, from art and jewelry to kitchen, home, and bar. Uncommon Goods has something for everyone. Not the same lackluster gifts that you can find just anywhere, but stuff that's cool. And with every purchase you make at Uncommon Goods, they give a dollar back to a nonprofit partner of your choice. They've donated more than $2.5 million to date. So to get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash distraction. That's uncommongoods.com slash distraction for 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods, we're all out of the ordinary. The Distraction is also sponsored this week by Wild Grain. They are the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisan pastries. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less with no thawing required. I got wild grain. I've talked about it on here and I'm happy to talk about it again. If you see me in the street, I will tell you about the bool that I received from wild grain, probably for long enough that you're going to start like checking your phone or like acting like you have someplace else you need to be. That's how important that bool was to me. I had no idea that bake from frozen breads or artisan pastries or whatever was even a thing necessarily. I certainly never would have guessed it was this good. It was extremely high quality, like you would get from the bakery type stuff that I managed to put together and feel like a big man about in less than half an hour. It was extremely passive and easy, and the stuff came out exactly the way that you would want to get it from a bakery that you would want to go to. If this is an experience that you would like to have for yourself, I have some great news. You can fully customize your wild grain box so you can get any combination of breads, pastas, and pastries that you like. If you want a box of all bread or all pasta or all pastries, you can have it. If you want to do that sort of thing, I encourage you to do it. They're all good. The pastries are also very good. I didn't talk about them. Plus, for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com distraction to start your subscription. You heard me. That's free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash distraction. That's wildgrain.com slash distraction, or you can use promo code distraction at checkout. We're back with Rob Harvilla talking about the 60 songs that explain the 90s book, which is out right now, this week. And uh, there's more than 60 yes. songs discussed in it, but that's okay. Rob, since we are here and we're talking about sort of categories and, and the, you know, sort of the kitschy part of, of the 90s music scene, uh, we should also note that there is some, there was some fucking incredible shit that came out in the 1990s. Like my favorite albums of all time, the the back-to-back of Sugar's Copper Blue and Beaster, that came out. In the 1990s. Yes. And it fucking holds up like a motherfucker. What are your favorite and your legitimately favorite uh, songs and albums from the 1990s? Let's let's remember some awesome songs. Those are your top two. Yeah. That's a rad top two, if yeah. that's true. Yes. Where are you on File Under Easy Listening? Because that's my favorite. Oh, it's fucking great. That So that was the one that got me yeah. into Sugar because I saw the video for your favorite thing on 120 Minutes. And yeah, I was like, yeah, hey, yeah, yeah, that yeah. band's good. And then... That was my entryway into them. And then and then my roommate, Kevin, had Copper Blue. And I put that on. I was like, oh, my God, this is even better. And then he put on Beaster. And I was like, okay, well, this is the most mind-blowing shit I ever heard. Absolutely. You know, uh, but now I'm, I am talking too much about me 
And if if we let me talk too long, it's going to venture into Josh Dobbs territory. So we can't do that. So <laughs> Rob, please know us. Please know Josh Dobbs. <laughs> right. Yeah. You guys talk about your favorite shit from the 1990s. Rob? I have to say I'm a They Might Be Giants man. No shit. You know, listening to them, hearing them. Particle Man at 12 years old was a formative oh. experience for me. Probably the band I've seen live the most. Probably seen them 15, 20 times, all told. Wow. And so I... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like a ton, a ton of shows in Cleveland. I when I lived in New York, I saw them there. When I lived in California, I saw them there. You know, they they put out kids albums when they had kids, so I played them for my kids. And now my kids are into them. Like that's the only music for my youth that I have successfully transplanted onto my children. You know, and pretty I'm pretty good. happy about that. You know, my top five bands when I was in high school were like what Smashing Pumpkins, Nine Inch Nails, Pearl Jam, uh, probably they might be Giants and like Pavement. Maybe, okay. you know, I was I was an alt-rock kid. I was a specialist. There's a funny bit in the book where you talk about the because there's a in Range Life where Pavement singles out the Smashing Pumpkins for some very vague but very withering criticism. And you talk about how difficult it was mm-hmm. to see your your uh, mom and dad fighting like that, which was uh, really resonated. It was difficult, but I yeah, I I didn't feel the need to take a side though. Like I yep. cause, like Billy Corgan. Like if I had a favorite band in high school, it probably was Smashing Pumpkins. Like Siamese Dream and Melancholy are sort of my Copper Blue and Beaster, right? But I understood always like what a pain in the ass Billy Corgan was, like, and <laughs> right. what an antagonist, yeah. and what a whiner. And his whining is what drew me to him and like sort of bound me to him because I also was a whiner and a moper. His singing voice is whining. It is, ex- yeah. yeah, exactly. It is pure whining. Ta-da! <laughs> it's also, I think he's got that thing where you, you maybe you don't appreciate it as a teenager in the way that you do as an adult, where like he was like a 27-year-old, 16-year-old. That is true. He is still. And yeah. so that part of the, like it definitely, like I remember vibing with it pretty well too. They were never one of my favorite bands, but I was always like, damn, this guy is feeling some big fucking feelings here, huh? Like this is like every one of those songs was just vast in its scope yeah. and scale and ambition of like, and you know, when you're that age, it's like everything that you're, feeling feels that big too so it it worked in that way like i think Mm -hmm. even if it wasn't a hundred percent for me i remember i mean and this is the sort of thing where i think a lot of this music holds up well on its merits but because of the age that i was i mean that all of us were we're all you know roughly within the same band of ages you know I was discovering things that I hadn't heard before in the 90s and it was i think if you know to go back to the sort of like technological realities of that era like i was discovering them because i'd like read about them in rolling stone or i'd like hear them on the radio there was only so many places that right that i was gonna like get any of this stuff and so it wasn't like it arrived with like a hype uh sort of nimbus that had been ginned up by a record label it was that like i read in like ego trip that you had to hear fucking illmatic or whatever (laughs) and then i heard it and was like oh my god what is this and I had that experience over right. and over and over yeah. again because there were a lot of great records coming out and stuff. But also, like, I was hearing things for the first time because I was, like, doing everything for the first time. I was, like, 15 or 17 years old, you right. know? So yeah. the record that I remember as, and it's not my favorite Yola Tango record, and it is, I know, embarrassingly on brand mm. for me to mention Yola Tango, but I had the Bergen Record, which <laughs> is the newspaper for the area that I grew up in, 
I did some like high school journalism thing there where I would go in at night. My dad would yes. take me to their offices in Hackensack and I and some other local ne'er-do-well kids or whatever would hang around, listen to a journalist talk, and then they would just dump a bunch of promo CDs on a table and we would descend on it like the zombies in Beautiful. Dawn of the Dead. Right. And I remember getting in there and just grabbing shit, like not willy nilly, although I did get some stuff. Where I was just kind of, I remember I got like a Sonny Chirac record and I was just like, I don't know what this is. Yeah. And it was like completely bizarre <laughs> music that like I've come to appreciate later in life. Yeah. But I got um, Electro Pura, the Yola Tango record, because I had seen it in, you know, whatever. Yola, uh, Yola Tango probably warranted like a 200 word review in the print edition of Rolling Stone yeah. at that point. But I was like, they're from New Jersey. Their name, I think I knew, had something to do with the Mets, which it does. And so I grabbed it. And that was one <laughs> that right, I, I remember right. listening to at home and just hearing stuff for the first time, like hearing that type of music for the first time. And so they've made records that I yeah. like more than that. But that's one that I think of as a real like third eye opener. If you want to accept mm -hmm. like a whatever, like fuzzy guitar sound as something that's going to open your third eye. <laughs> but it was... That was no, a it was revolutionary at the time. The first time you hear Tom Courtenay, like, yeah, that, that totally is going to work on you if you're 15 and yeah. have a certain mindset. Because it's all NASCAF. What is is it? NASCAF? Did I get it right? NASCAF? That's, that's NASCAF. The spiritual the NASCAF. Yeah. NASCAF. Sorry. Sorry. That was a coffee, probably. No, that it's I all right. Yeah, nice NASCAF. going, Dick. All right. I got it. You're just offended. <laughs> you're just, please, please edit that you're just out. Drew, so I, the copper, great. can I ask about the like copper blue, like those records? As I admire sugar a lot i do not like i'm not as as big a fan as you but like well, fuck what you. were you what were you bringing to that like what did you been listening to before them like metallica and stuff or yeah, like yeah i mean hmm. like i had always right. i remain you know a, a hard rock person right like it was you know thrash and you know metallica and stuff like that and there was a lot of and when i liked i like nirvana because nirvana you know as as different as Nevermind was when it hit, it was still produced very much like a mainstream rock record. It had Motley Crue. It had right. polish to it, you know, and that was no accident. Like it was something Kurt Cobain even wanted. He he wanted the band to be popular enough for them to, you know, he didn't expect to sell 50 million records and become what he became, but he wanted to be prosperous enough that he could make music tour and earn a nice living and have a name for himself and never mind reflected that like it hey, there was there was mainstream ambition to it baked into the production that's why it sounded great and so that appealed to me so i like that and soundgarden and stuff like that and then when i heard hmm. copper blue who you know it bob molds a mastermind by uh behind it he was the front man for husker du and husker du is mm -hmm. the band that essentially influenced cobain Dave Grohl, all those other bands, like they wouldn't exist without that band. And that suddenly everything just clicked for me. It was like, it's the music you kind of hear in your head or you're hoping you hear in your head, but you finally hear it on record. And it's mm. like, okay, this is someone, someone wrote this song and recorded it for me and for me alone. And that is always what I speaking directly to Drew McGarry. Yeah. yeah. And it, what an honor. And it also, it fucking rocked. It rocked so. <laughs> Fucking like Tilted also, is the rockingest goddamn song true. that ever existed. It's so fucking good. And, and JC so, uh, Auto. JC Auto is unbelievable. And so, and then it's also like the you know, the lyrics are about me. Like I'm 
I'm the one who's being judged. <laughs> I never got that. I never got the Drew McGarry. I'm going to have to go back and, and it, view it through the every, prism. Every of, kid, of every teenager, no matter their, yeah. their status, has a persecution complex where it's like, nobody gets me, man. Exactly. And then you put yeah. on the right album and it's like, this guy finally understands what it's like to be me. It makes it feel like inevitable, which it absolutely was not in retrospect, that at some point we would transition because it's for it's a youth product like massive major label music is for for children <laughs> for teenagers yes. the idea mm -hmm. that at some point you would get beyond like vince neal and the tightest pants allowable by law singing like too fast for love like i was a hundred percent not too fast yeah. for love at like 15 years old like i was <laughs> like if anything under the mandated speed floor right. like, i was going 15 miles an hour in the you right were not lane. driving like, 55 that's no right. i could yeah. absolutely not i couldn't drive 55 in the sense that i could not get the engine <laughs> revving that high so it was a That's very right yeah like i needed something that reflected a more uh you know scaled more to my emotions no i wanted i wanted music sure. as big as my daydreams so that motley crew and and rat mm. and all those motherfuckers they go. they absolutely were like okay home yeah i want to <laughs> i want to live in the house in stilts in la and do lots of cocaine and Bang strippers, that's the life for me, buddy. Now I'm 47 and I just want to do a sit in my chair all day. So there you go. <laughs> this special Drew chair. And listen to Christmas music, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> is enough of this book, I would say like 100 or 200 pages, is enough of it dedicated to Oasis and to the Manchester scene? Because otherwise, <laughs> I'm afraid I'm going to have to burn it. And uh, I really enjoyed the Oasis bit. I should say that you singled out what I always thought of as like the funniest Oasis detail, which is the fact that they were always wearing anoraks. Yes, the parkas, man. Just this majestic. Legendary windbreaker band <laughs> for reasons that I never fully parsed. Is that just because the weather in Manchester's bad? I guess that's what it well, is. Also because Liam looks good in it. He does. I never quite managed to look as good in a windbreaker as Liam Gallagher. I think no. Noel Gallagher has some quote, like that man can rock a parka or something like that. Like everyone acknowledges Liam's, you know, bond, <laughs> spiritual oh, yeah. bond with the parka. It was really admirable. Yeah. Yeah. Noel knows he's the uglier one. Noel, Noel definitely does. There is there is a great deal of Oasis content in the book. Oh, I can't confirm that. I th My favorite quote is like, my favorite quote of theirs is like, we... I've done more cocaine than anyone you've even heard of. That's one of my favorite rock star quotes. I believe that is Liam. He probably said that while wearing a parka. He was probably wearing the parka while doing all the cocaine, you know, and I, I admire him for that tremendously. There's a helicopter hover hovering over his shoulder for reasons no one exactly. can quite the out. Like the cocaine is blowing around because of the, heli you know, cocaine and helicopters do not mix ordinarily, but Oasis made it work. A good quote also, because it was true. I never understood the helicopter aspect. That was a, do you know what I mean, video. They they were yeah. just really into it. That's, yeah, that's, they, they were just really, and they were, when they played that giant show at Nebworth or whatever for like 400,000 people and like the only way they could get to the stage is by helicopter. And it's just like when you're, when you're eight years old, a helicopter is the coolest mode of transportation you can think of. And then when you're in the biggest rock band of all time, you're like, I, I'm, I'm going to get a helicopter. When you do the volume of cocaine required. I'm going to Rambo this shit. To wind your brain back to the <laughs> eight-year-old factory settings. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that it takes a lot of cocaine, but they were dedicated. I guess. <laughs> Rob, you say in the book that you own six cassette tapes in 1990. I will now list them: Mysteria by Def Leppard, New Jersey by Bon Jovi, Gonna Make You Sweat by CNC Music Factory, Pump Up the Jam by Technotronic. 
please hammer, don't hurt them. Don't hurt them by MC Hammer. I can't believe I said them. That's very funny. And of course, To the Extreme by Vanilla Ice. Can you please rank these albums in order of superiority? (laughs) Okay. Wow. All right. There's a right answer for number one, so don't Um, fuck up. Okay, I'm going to do my best. Uh what was the what was the phrase? Some German asshole. Okay, we'll we'll give the Belgian asshole in Technotronic. That's probably last place. There's some good jams on there, but I don't know if it holds together as like a full length. You know, this we're not exactly talking about DJ Shadow here or whatever. Yeah. Technotronic <laughs> is number six. Uh I CNC Music Factory number five. Things that make you go, hmm, still holds up for me. But you know, the rest shout out Martha Wash, but otherwise. Oh yeah. Okay, probably Vanilla Ice at number four, right? Having Aroni is my favorite album closer of the '90s. You know, I just <laughs> I, as a as, I don't beatbox at all. But if I did beatbox, I would just beatbox. I would just go beating, baden, beating, to baden, baden the whole time. I just, I, I love <laughs> Having Aroni very much. And also, shout out to Vanilla Ice for having a power ballad on to the extreme, literally called "I Love You," and it was "I Love You." I love you. It's. That's his LL Cool J moment. The worst song of the 90s is on that record. Vanilla Ice's Play That Funky Music, White Boy, is just not a good song at all. That's the only single piece of music from the 90s. It was. It was the second single, if I remember correctly. And you were just like, oh, no. And then he hung out with the Ninja Turtles, and it was fine. But, yeah, that's still number four. That's weird. Okay. um, It's Bon... Def Leppard, Bon Jovi, and what's the other one that's left? Sorry. Hammer. Hammer. Oh, Hammer's three. Yeah, MC Hammer is three. Please, Hammer, don't hurt them, uh, which is the way I'll be <laughs> reading that title for the rest of my life. Please, comma, Hammer, colon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, excuse me, sir. Yes, number three is Hammer. Wow. 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 New Jersey at number two. Oh, you got right? it right. You know, I, that album holds yeah. all the way up. From, I figured I had a feeling you would pour some sugar on me was my favorite song when I was nine. I did not understand the context. I did not know what the sugar was. You know, I, I, I you know, it's for the best. You know what? It still doesn't make any sense. Well, it kind of, yeah, and I know what you mean. But, you know, I have more context than I require now, but I loved that song dearly yeah. when I was nine years old, and I still do. So Hysteria was definitely the the best tape I owned of the first six. I find it kind of heartening that it seems like it's, I wouldn't say it's like a chalk take, but in your uh fellow member of the tall guys whom write about music brotherhood tom bryan has written about those deaf leopard records hysteria he's taller than almost everybody uh the hysteria and then i forget the name of the one that came before it um pyromania pyromania these like they're tens they're perfect albums which is good for them like i i at the time didn't take it seriously because i was like who are these guys what's their what is like why would you want someone to just pour granulated sugar on you and make a mess <laughs> this was back when Mutt lang was their producer and he would he would lock them in the studio for like a year That's right and have them like replay single drum beats and like like single guitar plucks like to the extent of like absolute micromanagement and the entire band wanted him dead and then they made a billion dollars and didn't give a fuck after that that uh, album does not sound human it does not sound no. like people played it it does it just sounds like robots bumping into each other yeah uh rob i must ask now i must uh get off of the 90s for a moment Mm. 
and ask you, you are uh, a Cleveland Browns fan. You might be the first Cleveland Browns fan we've had on the podcast. Yeah, they oh, just boy. beat the hated Ravens thanks to quarterback Deshaun Watson finally playing like Deshaun Watson again. Uh, they could maybe uh, make the Super Bowl this year. How happy versus uncomfortable are these Browns making you at the moment? Honest answers only, please. It's like 95% uncomfortable, right? It's No, it sucks. It's just, it's a no-win situation, right? To just be locked, to be handcuffed to this guy for the rest of my life. When you're When you're watching the game, is that true? I don't think actively in the moment, like I'm whooping, you know, at, at the pick six, like everybody else right. or like everybody else in the room. Right. But it's just, there. it's just, it feels icky, the whole thing. That is an insufficient word, of course, but it's just the brownsest thing ever, right. To remove any possibility of this feeling good, of this being a, being a feel good story. Like I want him to get severely injured. I, I want my own Josh Dobbs, right? Like I just want some sort of miracle I don't know who's available. You guys are much better at like backup quarterbacks than I am. Like the the one we currently have is horrible. Yeah, he's not like good. world historically horrible, apparently. Ah, the immortal PJ Walker. We love Peach. There you go. Thank you. Thank you very much. What I wanted, what's Brady Quinn up to? You know, as a big fan of his work, of his subway ads in particular, yeah. I really like the cut of his jib. <laughs> he, uh, I wonder if he's, I wonder if he's a studio let's host. Let's get him back and win the Super Bowl with him. He is oh, a, good. He's That's a studio good. host for That's Fox nice. on their college, uh, like their equivalent of college game day. Hmm. And he is uh, a color okay. guy for their NFL team. And, and he's, he's perfectly competent. He's perfectly good. But also his hair is like, like rock solid, like like yeah. so much depth in it. It's so much it's like a like a Lego man haircut. Uh, like you could just snap it onto a little bulb on top of his head. <laughs> yeah, there we place. go. Like doesn't like that not is, as ugly as Trent Lott's hair, but just as immovable. Like a fucking hurricane, like a Category Twelve hurricane could hit that hair, would not budge, not a single okay. end split. I'm so happy to hear that. To be honest with you, and I don't know why the Browns fans in my life. They echoed what Rob said about basically like the it's not that it's hard to cheer for the team that you grew up cheering for. It's just like it makes you not want to watch, I think, just sort of knowing that there's a guy. Yeah, that, I didn't watch like the whole first year. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it made it easier when he was bad. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So it's no, it's it's just such a Browns construction to like rob even this very cool, you know, sort of underdog moment of all its glory. You know, there's just no good outcome, you know, and that that it, it feels right, you know, having rooted for this team all my life, but it it feels terrible at the same time. Would you rather have the Browns' current sort of predicament and history foisted upon you, or or would you rather experience what Bills fans are going through right now, where they have a legendary quarterback who does nothing but turn the ball over. Right. And they're sinking down out of playoff contention. Their window might be closing. They just fired their offensive coordinator as we recorded this podcast. And there's a sense that they are no. going to blow it on a mass scale that they haven't done since the 1990s, and they won't even make it that far. Would that be an even worse fate for you than the Browns winning a Super Bowl with a shitbag at quarterback? Man, that's a tough one. I do enjoy the whole Bills lifestyle, you know, the Zubaz pants, yeah. the throwing your friends through tables element of it. I feel like there's a whole subculture, you know, it's like the Grateful Dead, you know, like maybe you're into <laughs> the dead or maybe you're just into like hanging out in the parking right. lot with your friends, you know, and getting obliterated. I feel like there's enough, there's enough 
other things going on with the Bills where you can't ignore, you know, these times of, of strife and catastrophe. So I, I would take the Bills, you know, if I had to do it all over again. But, you know, I'm stuck. I'm stuck where I am. You know, I, I walked, I marched technically in the Owen 16 parade around no Brown Stadium, shit. you know, whenever that was. It was it was so cold, my phone, like, froze off. Like, Ooh. my phone just refused to worry. He's like, fuck this shit. And, yeah, that's that's a real – but uh, the parade floats, you know, it was a beautiful – it was a beautiful and ice cold, you know, but, but heartening moment at the same time. So I feel like I've earned – I feel like Browns fans have earned, like, pure happiness. But I think inherent to the Browns experience is never getting it, even when you have reason to be a little happy. You know, I like it could be bill. worse. Tommy DeVito could I be your quarterback. Again. So, you know. We're not talking about Tommy DeVito, That's Drew. True. We're not doing it. The fucking bulls on this his, trick. His lovely family that everybody, I was so, that was crucial North Jersey representation to me. It was the DeVitos making it briefly on the TV during the Giants' <laughs> miserable rolling at the hands of the Cowboys. You see his dad being like, oof, Madone, after <laughs> like a turnover. His dad looked so much like his dad. It was fucking great. Oof. Yep. Kama Madone. Yes. And I thought I knew what his parents were going to look like. He went to Don Bosco Prep in Ramsey, New Jersey. I was threatened with going to Don Bosco Prep when I got caught shoplifting in eighth grade. My parents were like, we will do it. We know that you're Jewish. We're Jewish wow. too. We'll send you in there with the Catholics. Like That's how serious we are about getting you straightened out. I did a tour there. Uh, like did The whole shit. And so I thought I knew what Don Bosco parents were like. And Tommy DeVito's parents are not what I thought. I thought they were going to be like dermatologists. Mm. And they're like, that is North Jersey Italian excellence. <laughs> I want nothing but good things for him. I hope that he never plays another down for the Giants. But I hope he hangs around for 10 years and makes a bunch of money. The old man looked like if a meatball sub were a person. It would it's be. not nice. But yes, he did. Kind of <laughs> <laughs> See, I think that's a nice idea. An anthropomorphic meatball sub sounds great. Yeah. Time to open up the fun bag. These are real questions from defector readers and distraction listeners. Oh, I have time for one Rob R. Villa, but it's a good one. It's from Kevin. And Kevin writes in, what's the movie line you think you've said the most in your life? It has to be in line with some utilities so that it works in everyday situations. I think mine might be dishes are done, man, from don't tell mom the babysitter's dead. I say that... <laughs> To myself, every time I finish the dishes, Rob, uh, is there a movie line you say to yourself, to other people, over and over again, almost as a reflex? I got a lot of Army of Darkness lines cycling through my head, and I'm Ooh. trying to settle on one. I would like to be a give me some sugar baby person, but that's just not the lifestyle. Right. Yeah. Are you ever living? using a boomstick in your day-to-day -day life? Probably not. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> now I swear. Next one of you primates, even touch, you know, okay, I... Oh, I just had it, and then I lost That's it. a pretty solid Bruce Campbell there. I, I, I'd like to think Very so. Very gratifying to hear... <laughs> Uh, Roth, do you have one? I wish I had more. I mean, like, I I just have done stuff as, like, jokes for the longest time that a lot... Of, I mean, it's not like the, like, she's got a great ass. Like, I don't... I can't say it, you know? Like, <laughs> even, under even your, if I saw somebody that did have a great ass, I'd be like, oh, she's got a great ass. You but know, even, but like, to yourself, like, like, if you're taking a piss and no one can hear you, you're like, yeah, great ass, like, just for fun. 
It's it's mostly Pacino. Like it is a lot of like take a flamethrower to this place. Yeah. Like a lot of like those are the thoughts that sort of scroll on the LED screen in my mind. Right. But they're not like <laughs> things that I say out loud nearly as often as I should. Right. Yeah. yeah. The, well, our producer just, Eric does answered it for you because it's my wife. Like uh, yeah, I guess that's probably true. Mm. Actually, I have done more bored voice than I should have been permitted to do. But yes, Eric is Eric is correct. I have probably said very nice my wife to my actual wife a thousand times. We're sure. still married. Uh, and that's a real success story. By the way, I, I met a very nice Kazakh woman uh, over the weekend and I had to fucking strangle myself from being like, Bleh! like I, I was not, Kazakhstan. Like I was you I, like, I very nice. How much? Yeah. Yeah. You did not. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. I I have wife. I trade her for gallon of insecticide. Like I couldn't. You can't do that. I admire your restraint, Drew. Do you? I feel like you certainly have an answer to this. So I have two. One is, uh, if any of you have seen Reversible Fortune, which I think was released in 1990, Jeremy Irons won yeah, Best wow. Actor for playing Klaus von Bülow. His accent as Klaus von Bülow is indelible in my brain. And the thing I remember most is. <laughs> Um, before he kills his wife, whose name is Sonny, he, he's looking for her in his house. Spoiler. And he's looking around, he, he peers into a doorway or something, and he says, Sonny? And whenever it's sunny <laughs> outside, sure as shit, I say to my wife, Sonny? It's sunny outside. That's dark. Does she know the context of that? Uh, oh, you know what? Probably not. And then <laughs> the other one is uh, whenever something is... I, I replayed the first, like... 40 minutes of Fellowship of the Ring in my head, a lot, unreasonably so. And so a lot mm. of those lines pop out of me uh, because they like they apply in practical settings. So like if I if I hand somebody something that's cold, I'll say, and I'll, only I will know that I'm slightly imitating Gandalf, but I'll just say, it's quite cool. I want you to hold out your hand. <laughs> but I don't that is, I don't that is give away the game. Gandalf. I don't do a full British accent, but I'm thinking I'm in the Gandalf mindset. Okay. okay? Yeah. I am not Gandalf himself. I'm not Sir Ian McKellen, but I'm in that headspace. Okay. And that's that's where I go. Gandalf mindset is a really powerful. Like gorilla mindset, but Gandalf. But yeah. That's actually, yeah. that's the name of my, my Nescac rock band is Gandalf mindset. <laughs> we'll be opening. For big head Todd in the mouth. Great logo possibility. I'm glad to hear that Jeremy Irons' voice is a big part of your household too. Jeremy Irons' voice is a is a big thing <laughs> for us or for me that my wife puts up with. I, the one that <laughs> the one that I've done the most is the idea of Jeremy Irons buying a ticket for Dune and being like Chew for June, <laughs> which I just <laughs> find the way that he speaks to be very gratifying. Chew, Chew, Jay. Uh, Rob Harvilla, right. the podcast is called 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. The book is also called 60 Songs That Explain the 90s. And I'm going to explain where you can get that book right now. Everywhere. You can get it at bookstores and online, and you can listen to the podcast anywhere you get your podcast. Is there anything else you want to plug, Rob, while you're here? I don't think so, man. Just buy the book. First week sales are very important, I am told, yeah. reliably. You know, Barbara Streisand's got a book out. That's going to sell more copies. Yeah, it's. I'm a little worried about getting that. my ass kicked by Barbara Streisand. I no, I don't. I guess I don't. I should. I should visualize. I should be in a more of a Gandalf mindset about this. I should That's, be more proactive. Yeah, savvy. If you if you experience, it's a good book. 
If you experience my fate, you'll you'll publish a parenting book <laughs> the you. same weekend that Jim Gaffigan did the same, and he outsells you by five billion. It's very. Uh, it's a it's Jim a great Gaffigan. Feeling. Five billion. That's a lot. So you'll have like you get like <laughs> Aziz Ansari released eighty songs that explain the nineteen nineties, and you'd be like, ah, Aziz. That's right. Jim Jim could not write the hike. That's what I have to say. That's right. Motherfucker. Only I could. Our producer is Eric Silver, Brandy Google, our editor. (laughs) Our theme song is by Kirk Hamilton. Ads and production services by Multitude. And you can subscribe to Defector.com right now. Go to Defector and hit the subscribe button. You can also email us at distraction at Defector.com or even call us at 909-726-3720 and leave a message. That's 909 Panera Zero, Rob Harvilla, it was so lovely to have you on. Please come on again sometime, okay? <laughs> Thanks for doing it, man. I would love to. Is that really your phone number, Panera Zero? That's a fantastic phone number. It's a whole gag. It is. People leave voicemails there, and they're like, if you found a sandwich in a toilet, would you eat it? And I'm like, yeah, probably. And that's like that's a whole thing we've got with our it's, listeners. It's even realer than the <laughs> Jessica Law Han hotline. That's the truth. Yep. <laughs> okay. I'm going to call it right now, honestly. We will see you next week for Thanksgiving. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Three, Three, two, two, one. 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 It was worse, wasn't it? It seems like that was worse.